Welcome to the Purpose and Profit Sisterhood podcast, where we are a stand for the EAN. We're here to help you make a meaningful difference in a magnificent living. Your bodacious host is Jeanette Anderson. She's your irreverent guide to being bold, brilliant, and brave. So grab your wine, a way to take notes, and strap in. Because this is a no BS, value-packed tour through topics that you need to know about now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Purpose and Profit Sisterhood podcast. Used to be called the Vodacity Show, might be called something else in the future. Just keep up. I'm Jeanette Anderson, your hostess with the mostess. And today I have the fabulous Suzanne Jabour. Did I pronounce your last name correct? Okay. Perfectly. Okay, good. Um, with me. And I, in a moment, I'll tell you the official uh, info about her, and then we'll find out about the unofficial juicy tidbits. But today we're going to be talking about uh, a really, really, really wonderful topic, and that's grief. Um, now, you may not know why I'm so excited about it, but I think it's something that we don't talk about enough in our society. Everybody goes through, everybody experiences, and we certainly have come through a period of uh, societal grief, individual grief, and lots of uh, change and challenge in the last few years. So I would love to have you come and find out some practical tips and hints from Suzanne on this topic. So welcome, Suzanne. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to read you her official intro and then we'll find out the, the, you know, behind the scenes nuggets. Suzanne is determined to normalize grief and teach people how we can show up better for each other when we're experiencing it. She's developed a six step program that builds the mindsets, skills, and tools we need to show up for losses, big and small. Love it. All right. So that's the official part. And there's also more info and bio in the uh, Facebook group about that um, and below the podcast in the show notes and so forth. But tell us more about you that we wouldn't guess if we went and read all your mini blogs where you tell us everything. What is what is one thing people wouldn't guess about you? So, and that's, this is a hard question because I'm pretty open about what's going on in my life and who I am and what I'm about. I was going to say people wouldn't know that I have a really adorable dog, except I think I posted some pictures of him. So that's <laughs> no good. So what people wouldn't know about me is I grew up in a family with two brothers. I was fortunate enough to be adopted into an amazing family. And I most recently found my birth family, my birth mother, which is amazing. And my entire life, I pined for a sister. And instead I have found two more brothers. So I now have four brothers and they're all wonderful and great. And I'm thrilled to have found two more, but like, really there's no sisters for me. <laughs> okay. Well, I tell you what, join the purpose and profit sisterhood yeah. and you have about 1400 sisters right now. Exactly. Take. Yeah. Um, I have, yeah. I have made many sisters over my lifetime, but it was like, Oh, I found my birth mother. Like, I wonder if I have siblings. Oh yes. Two more brothers. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, clearly you're supposed to like, you know, have more testosterone in your life or something. Like I don't that. know. Evidently. Yeah. All right. So tell us uh, a little bit about why you got into this work, because it's an unusual line of work. So what's your why around this? So I come to this work out of my own personal losses. Um, the most recent one being really catastrophic. Um, I'm a mother who had a child die. So that's you know, grief to the next level that, you know, was impossible for me to comprehend, even though I was living it. 
And what I learned was so much about how we don't know how to support each other and we don't know what to say and we don't know what to do. So my big why is to open up conversations about grief, to share what we know about it and how we know how to support each other so that one day, maybe in my lifetime, we would talk about grief as naturally as we talk about what we binge watched on Netflix on the weekend. Mm. Well, so my my condolences on the loss, although that's one of those things that really doesn't actually help at all, but we'll talk more about that. Um, and and uh, what a beautiful testament to your child to take take that experience and turn it into something that's beneficial for not only you, but uh, other people that you support. Um, because unfortunately, it's not a, an isolated incident, whether it's mm-hmm. the loss of a child or a parent or a partner or spouse or um, even just a, a really good friend. It can be really, really devastating. Although I do think that probably the loss of a child is the most challenging of all of those simply because that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, there's a lot of supposed tos that get blown up when that happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, so what, what, well, first of all, how long ago did that happen? And did you start to move into this work? How long have you been doing it? Uh, Ben died in September of 2020. So it's almost three years uh, since he died. And I started writing and really became a grief educator, you know, by necessity for me, because I just needed to be able to write and share what was going on for me Mm -hmm. uh, very early after he died, because I just had to get the thoughts and the spin and the confusion and the mess out of my head. And that was how I could do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the response that I got from, you know, people who were reading my posts on Facebook, which is where I started, was that it was helping them so much to understand really how grief worked. Mm -hmm. So then my curiosity just has kind of taken me down this path of, you know, working with other grievers and thinking, no, like this is a bigger mission than, you know, helping individual grievers, though I love to do that too. You know, this is about a real societal change that we need and a kind of a reckoning that we need to have with our inability to think about, talk about, understand, support each other when Mm -hmm. losses happen. And I think you're so brilliant in pointing out that we have lived in a sea of loss for the last few years, you know, collective, individual, existential, you know, environmental, like, you know, we're watching so much of what has been normal for us fall apart around us. And that brings a lot of grief and I, and we're not talking about it. And that makes me really nervous for us because we're so good at ignoring our emotions and not talking about them, especially North America. We're very conditioned to be intellectual and not emotional. And I think that the suppression and the denial of all of that is part of what we're seeing now where people are lashing out in anger and fear Mm-hmm. And they can't hold it all anymore, right? The boxes are starting to explode and it's going to get ugly. So, yep. you know, whatever I can do to help people be more comfortable with what's going on for them and also with how they can support other people. I think especially as female business owners, we see so much loss that, you know, because we're kind of caught up in that male paradigm of, you know, go and do and push and achieve, we kind of deny ourselves acknowledgement of, but you know, I can't be the only business owner who's launched a product and had it fizzle or who's, you know, had a really big goal and had it not come to fruition the way that I expected. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that there isn't great value in all the debriefing and the harvesting and composting that we do to kind of see what went wrong and what we can, how we can pivot and how, where we go from here. But there's also a bunch of emotions that come with that, especially for those of us whose business is part of our big why, which I know is your audience, because that's you too. 
you know, when your big why kind of fizzles, that's even more emotional than if you were just, you know, putting bottles on the Coke bottles, which of course the machine does for us now. But, and so our inability to talk about that, or even to take the time to just pause and acknowledge it, I think we all have space for a lot of growth there. And that enriches our business. It enriches our relationships with our staff. You know, it, it enriches is that even a word? I've said it three times now. I hope it's a word. Somebody will Google and be like, oh my God, I can't believe that woman said that over and over again. Anyway, it makes better. That's even worse grammar. Okay, never mind. I'm not going to worry about it. But it helps our relationships with our customers as well. So it really is a beautiful ripple of love that we all so desperately need right now. Exactly. And I love that statement. There's a ripple of love because when we are present with what is, then we yeah. can be present with other people with what is for them. But when we're not, then we can't, right? And so exactly. I'm, I'm with you. I think that um, the suppression of so much of the anxiety, fears, loss, grief, et cetera, over the last three years has created um, a, a lot of depression and a lot of what mm-hmm. I would call PTSD yep. in our zeitgeist that we have not addressed, talked about or anything. Everybody's just rushing to get back to quote unquote normal, whatever the hell that is. Um, <laughs> Or even the new normal, which is still just a very- Even worse, yeah. yeah, Let's just not deal with any of it. Um, And I think it really, what I noticed is it really exacerbated the us versus them um, kind of tension in society uh, because we were feeling disconnected from one another and that's a loss. We were feeling disconnected from ourselves and our security and safety Mm -hmm. a lot that didn't get addressed and and um, so forth. And that made more of the us versus them, hence the yeah. you know, uprising Black Lives Matter and all of the political polarities, especially in the US and, and in Canada as well and around yeah. the world. Um, and still now, Russia, Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, there's always been that, but I, to me, it feels like there's more of it because we are not being with our humanity is how I would frame that. And yes. so, so you, you mentioned, and so I think that this is a, an entirely critical conversation, which is why it just actually ended up being that I had two people on grief and you ended up being back to back, which is, I think is quite oh, interesting. Yeah. We haven't had anyone for a couple of years and now we've got two back to back. So clearly it's time to be talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a bunch of things you said that I want to come back to, but one of the ones that you mentioned is, especially in North America, we tend to be very intellectually driven. We tend to be a lot of push and drive kind of mentality, mm-hmm. what I call more of a masculine model. Um, do you notice or in your research, have you found that there is cultural differences around grief? like in different cultures and nations and so forth? Is there a lot of difference between how societies grieve? Yeah, there is for sure. And I need to do about a thousand more hours of research because I'm so fascinated by it. You know, I was talking to someone the other day and they were talking about, and I so I, I still have brain fog. Brain fog is a thing that happens in grief. We can talk about that later. Um, and there's all kinds of ways to mitigate it, but I don't take enough notes when I'm having conversations with people. But they were talking about a culture where for the service, you hired professional mourners mm. and their job was to come and mourn loudly. And I thought that was so fascinating because in our, you know, in my experience of funerals and celebrations of life and whatever, We're all sitting there trying to cry as quietly as possible, preferably silently, while Mm. not really making a thing about it at all. And then like, we're going to go and have lunch. It's the weirdest thing. 
Yeah. So imagine what the vibe would be if there were people in the room getting paid to mm-hmm. set the tone for it to be loud and emotional and the amount of emotion that would be moved then like literally moved through our bodies that we could process if we were all in this collective loud experience together. It just sounded so magical to me. So yeah. I know there are differences. There are a lot of cultures that are much better at acknowledging. They either have um, some kind of signaling. So you wear all black for a year, you wear all white for a year. I remember when my kids were little, a, a wonderful couple across the street, um, one of their parents died and this was a, a normal, you know, it was an aging parent. Um, and their tradition was that they couldn't celebrate anything for a year. Mm. So no birthdays, no Christmas, no whatever other celebrations they would have had. And we only found out about it because of course they couldn't celebrate Halloween. And in our neighborhood, when the kids were little, Halloween was a huge deal. Like we had over 150 kids every year. It was this big thing. So they made up little goodie bags for the, the few kids right around them and came over and said, like, we just wanted to let you know, you know, we're not allowed to celebrate anything for the year. And so we won't have our pumpkin out and we didn't want the kids to be disappointed. Mm. And I thought that was so beautiful. Like, it's expected that you would spend a year feeling like you want to avoid celebration, because that was certainly the reality for me, like the idea of getting together with people and being happy and like celebrating something just felt so foreign and undoable. So I thought that was a beautiful tradition. So yes, there are hundred percent beautiful traditions all around us. <laughs> and many, I think in North America, we just kind of in the name of progress, we've left them behind, right? Whereas a grieving mom, I would have been thrilled if I had a sticker or, you know, rent my clothes or mm-hmm. some, there was some external sign. So people knew when I was out and about in the world that I needed some extra TLC. I think that would be wildly helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Just really touched by that too. Um, so then I'll apparently cry through this. But I, That's good. Emotions are supposed yeah. to come out your eyes sometimes. This is what yeah. healthy emotions look exactly. like. Exactly. Exactly. I was just surprised that that kind of jumped up and grabbed me. Um, so yeah, I was, and my business brain at the same time was going, buttons. We need buttons. Yeah, right. Piss <laughs> <laughs> off. I'm grieving. Or right. Hey, Grieving, or you could like select the button. Don't wish me a good day because it will make me want to punch you in the throat. That might be a little too long for the button, but that was my lived reality. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I think we do. We need little buttons or signs that you can change on the day to reflect where you're at with the, the, yeah, don't even think about it or or I will slap you, right? Kind of button. Don't ask me how I'm doing. You don't want to know, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So let's talk about that. And, and, oh, by the way, the only city that I know of, or the only place that I know of that does have a bit of that kind of flavor is New Orleans. Because mm, they yeah. still hire bands to lead processionals and funerals and so forth. Um, and, and it really is actually more about the celebration, but yeah. there is also that permission for the wailing and the weeping and so forth. Yeah, it's, whatever emotions come. The only place I know in North America where that is still institutionalized and still part of the culture, which mm-hmm. I think is beautiful, actually. Um, so let's talk about what are some of the very, uh, perhaps most funny now in hindsight, but the worst things that people say and do with people who are grieving. What are some of the don't do this at home kids? Yeah, right. So I would say pretty much anything you've ever heard said before, just just eliminate it from your vocabulary immediately. Um, 
Particularly what seems to strike grievers, regardless of their religious belief system, is any reference to, you know, they're in a better place, um, you know, God took them because they were special. There's so many sort of where God is in the languaging, um, which it was really interesting for me to hear from people who believed in God, for whom that was a real part of their um, belief system and what gave them strength and comfort, that even for them, it felt like, no. Of course, I would rather the person be with me. Um, anything that makes it sound like you know exactly what they're going through is problematic. Anything that centers you in the conversation instead of them. Um, it's fascinating too. I think, you know, we all kind of have this sense, and I think that's what makes us so hesitant that the things we've heard in the past don't really work anymore. They're from a time, I don't know, I blame everything on the 50s, right? <laughs> Where we were all trying so hard to be, you know, June Cleaver and leave it to Beaver, right? And it, which was an illusion at the time, remains an illusion. Hmm. Anything that kind of come from, comes from that sense of, you know, they would want you to be happy. Oh, the first time someone said that to me, it was like a knife to the heart. And I want to unpack them a little bit. So something like that, we, we say out of an intention of giving comfort, what the subtext of almost all of those are to the griever, though, is that you want me to be happy. Mm. The person who's saying it wants me to be happy. Mm. You don't know my son. You don't know what he might be thinking or feeling in any given moment. And frankly, at this point, he doesn't have a vote because he's not here to tell me. So what you're telling me is that you want me to be happy. You want me to be getting out back out in the world. You want me to be over it. You want me to move on because my grief makes you uncomfortable. Mm. So what that means to me is that you are not a person I can safely grieve with. Mm -hmm. And in those earliest days, about the first at least six months for me, if not a year, I was grieving openly all the time. So you are now a person it's not safe for me to be with because I can't be myself. And I know that's not what people intend, but that's what we hear. And that is part of, you know, it's part of how we kind of protect ourselves and our own discomfort. I became very clear that that was a you problem, not a me problem, because I could not carry the problems of anybody else. I could only manage my own. So, but it does create distance when, and I think then we end up all more isolated when really what we're craving is connection. And we want to say something that makes the person feel like we see them and we hear them and we care about them. But instead, just because we don't have anything better to say and we haven't practiced, we say something that creates isolation. So that to me is the worst part of all of those things is you end up feeling like, oh, like it's impossible for me to be over it. I'm never going to be over it. And I'm okay with that. I can function and, you know, be a functioning human and have happy moments and, you know, live a great life while still grieving the loss of my child. So if you don't think that's possible, then I don't get to continue to have the same kind of relationship with you. Right. So it does create that isolation. What I say to people is really what you need to do is speak your own words from your own discomfort <laughs> and just from the heart. Because if you really thought about you know, I do an exercise in one of my workshops where we think back to a time when, you know, now with the little bit of education we've had, we think, oh, I, I said one of those awful things, right? We've written them all down. We've brainstormed a big list and we've all said them. So this is a no shame, no blame exercise, right? So right. think back to one of those times you said one of those things and you either felt it land on the person and you felt them withdraw, which sometimes we do. And then we go, oh, shoot, I don't know what to do now. So I'm going to change the subject, <laughs> right? Because we're all so scared. So think about if you had a minute to just 
think your own emotions and think your own thought and just speak genuinely and authentically and vulnerably to that person, what would you say? And we take a minute to just write it down, to just journal it and come up with a few sentences. And the things people come up with are so beautiful and they're so exponentially a million times better than any cliche or platitude that you could pull out of your you know, list of things to say book that really that's the ticket. That's where we build connection is when, you know, the people who said the best things to me said things like, I don't know what to say. This is horrible. I don't even know how to help you. I don't know if you know how I can help you, but I love you. And I'm going to come over and I'm going to bring breakfast. What would you like? What could you eat? Mm. Right. Or something like that. And that was their words, but it was people owning that they didn't know what to do. There's no harm there. Then we're going to figure it out together. That's a lot of liberation, really, because I didn't know what to do either. And I'm the one who's in it. Yeah. So then you have that permission to kind of figure it out together. And if you can have those kind of conversations with your employees, or if you are in a situation like a hairdresser or someone who has really close relationships with their customers, you know, if you can have that kind of conversation, then you're building connection. And that to me is the saddest thing about how we deal with grief now is we're building isolation instead of connection. And it can be a connection time. Right. Uh, uh, So many, so many great things in there, but one of the things I really want to highlight is, and it's a moment by moment situation. So that moment, it might be, let me bring you breakfast. And the next day, if they show up with breakfast, you want to throw it at them. So it needs to be a moment by moment check-in without the assumptions that this is a static state. And this will always be the way to support them going forward, right? Yes. Yeah. Because that will change, as you say, moment to moment. And it's interesting, you know, the what to say is this open-hearted, you know, expansive thing. The what to do is a very specific offer because mm-hmm. in early grief, especially those first few months, you the grieving brain cannot conceive of what you might need at a future day. So we say really thoughtful things like, oh, I'm here for you. Like anything you need, just let me know. And I would nod and smile and think, that's a lovely concept, but yeah. I cannot, I, when I think of something I need, I won't remember who said it and I won't know who to call. Right. So, you know, the, the practical support offers are really specific. I'm going to the grocery store today. Do you need milk? Right. You know, go stand in front of your fridge. Tell me what's missing. I'll bring it to you this afternoon. So really practical. I'm mowing my lawn. Can I come and mow yours? <laughs> right. Yeah. The more yeah. specific, the more practical, the more I'm already doing it. Can I help you too? Is really great too, because those of us that are in this culture of wanting to be independent and not wanting to be a burden and all of that, which many of us are trying to break down, but that conditioning runs deep, right? If you're already going to the grocery store to bring me a loaf of bread is not a big ask. Right. So all of those kinds of things are really, really helpful. Beautiful. That makes a lot of sense. And and you mentioned before that one of, you know, while we're on the topic, one of the aspects of grief is poor memory. What are some of the other things that people go through while they're in deep grieving um, that we may not be aware of or, you know, that we want to know about in terms of some of the stages so that we're not surprised or, you know, whatever the case may be. So what are some of the aspects of grieving that you wish people knew more about? Yeah, I wish we talked about them all the time. So this is what, you know, this is my mission. Let's talk about them all the time because I say to people, you know, anything you're feeling or experiencing someone else has before you, but because we don't talk about it, 
my initial thought was, oh my gosh, okay, so my child has died. I've also lost myself because I don't know who I am. And evidently I have like immediate onset dementia because I can't remember anything. I don't know how to like bathe myself. Like it was brutal. It's brutal those first early days. So the brain fog is real, the memory loss, the inability to do sequential tasks, your connection with time gets really messed up. I think that for me, that was also impacted by the COVID of it all, because Ben died right in the midst of the fall lockdowns that were coming and um, different restrictions that we faced. Um, so we all had kind of learned in the previous months that actually time was a construct, clearly, because it didn't make any sense to us anymore. And then you layer grief on top of that. So one of the things we can do that really helps people is do things like reminders or help them set an alarm, help them make a note. You know, in, in a workplace, we have so much ability to support people through technology, right? Remembering due dates, super hard, but there's so many shared calendars that we can use now. So many ways we can break down tasks and say, this is first, this is second, this is third, this is fourth. It's easy. We, you can voice to text it. You don't even have to type it, right? It's so easy to do some of these things now. So for sure, that's uh, the brain fog is the biggest one when it comes to the workplace, needing support with multi-step tasks. Um, a lot of people have trouble eating, eating anything, eating the wrong things, eating just becomes really complicated. Sleeping is another one. Sleep disruptions are huge, which means that you're already exhausted and you're not eating and you're not sleeping. So your physiological self is all in a hot mess. Like grief is a physical thing too. A lot of people have physical pain. Uh, numbness in their extremities is really normal. Um, what else? Oh, for me, one of the interesting ones about brain fog, I've lived in the city that I live in now since I was eight. And you can tell by looking at me, that was a few years ago. I'm in my mid fifties now. I've lived here since I was eight. That's a long time. I know my way around pretty well. I have never used my GPS so much in my entire life because to remember to go to this street and then turn a certain direction and then go a certain distance to turn to another. I couldn't, I just couldn't remember it. It couldn't, it didn't stick. And this is a city that I've driven around since I was a teenager. So it really shows up in really interesting ways that we don't talk about. And so then it's scary when it happens to you. It's all happened to somebody they just felt worried and they didn't wanna frighten anybody and they didn't wanna out how weird their whole life had become, but it's normal. Whatever's happening to you, it's normal. Well, and let's talk about a little bit about the timeline of grief too, because I think a lot of people um, assume the worst of the grief is typically right when it happens. Mm -hmm. The experience actually, most people are busy coping in that period. And it's not until six months, sometimes a year later, I was just talking with a friend whose wife has now, they've gone through four years of her battling with death. Mm -hmm. uh, surgery after surgery and 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 so forth and and him being strong for the kids and so on and and she was just um diagnosed as cured and now he's grieving but he's confused mm -hmm. because why would I be grieving now now she's okay so talk a little bit about when you know like one of the things I do is I put in my calendar six months and eight months and 10 months and 12 months after someone dies or something happens to check in with that person yeah. because that's typically after they finish the coping when the grief actually lands. So talk a little bit about that and how, how people can support people in a timeline kind of way. Yeah. First of all, that's brilliant. And what a lovely gift that is to grievers 
Because what I'll say is that you reaching out on those milestone kind of times is such a gift because I, as the griever, know, I know what day it is. I know how long it's been. (laughs) I haven't forgotten. And to know that other people also haven't forgotten is really, really magical. So that's a huge thing. And what's beautiful about it is it does acknowledge that this takes a really long time. Mm -hmm. It takes a really long time. So I would say, you know, the acute phase where you're just in shock and barely functional is mm, probably a few months to be realistic. I think, you know, and I don't want to set a timeline because really it's different for everyone. But when we talk about early grief, the acknowledged norm is that it's about two years. And I think part of that is because we're so um, trained, we've been told all the firsts are going to be really hard. So we kind of steal ourselves and you know, it's going to be, you know, the first everything is going to be almost impossible. And it is. The thing that I didn't realize is that the seconds were going to be worse because I hadn't steeled myself the same way. And as you say, you're a little bit further out of shock. You're a little bit further out of survival mode. And your brain is really starting to understand that this is actually forever. Even though you knew it was forever right at the beginning, now you really get it. Like this is like forever. There's going to be a third thing that he's not at and a fourth one and a fifth one. And I mean, hopefully I'm 50. So maybe there'll be like 40 more of them. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of them that your person is not at. And so I think you know, acknowledging that those first two years really are early grief. Like that's really to be expected that you would still have moments of overwhelming emotion. They spread apart. You know, there's so many great analogies using water and waves around grief, which for me are super helpful because I just get water. I understand it. So it's that, you know, those early days are a tsunami where you're just like the flotsam and jetsam underwater and you hope you can bob to the top for a breath every once in a while, you know, and then you spend more of your time on the surface You only get doused every once in a while. And those get further and further apart. Sometimes they're predictable. Sometimes they're not. And I expect that I'll have those moments probably for the rest of my life. And I'm okay with that. But society doesn't understand that. Society wants you to grieve quickly and preferably quietly, be over it at the end of the funeral memorial celebration of life, and then pretend that everything's back to normal. And that's just not the way that it works. So the more we can share that reality, then the less we feel scared and isolated when it's happening to us. And yeah, if you can put a calendar, you know, a note in your calendar so that every year you send that person a text message, that's a gift. Well, and, and interestingly, or ironically, or whatever it may be, uh, today literally was my best friend's Mm. anniversary of of her death it's her second year of that and uh you know just sent her some love and she said you know yeah kind of kind of teary and and thanks for remembering and yeah basically I'm okay kind of thing but just the just to and literally I would not remember if it wasn't in my diary um but it is something that I think we can do some really tactical little things like that that helps. Um, I'll talk to you about this for hours, but we're almost out of time. But I do want to talk about uh, one of the things you mentioned, women in their business, especially, that Mm -hmm. we have a lot of losses because, and and we also tend to be comparative because I had someone a couple of days ago, another good friend say, well, 
you know, it's not like I lost this. So she's yeah. a lot of grieving and so forth and so on. It's not like it was, uh, a, what did she call it? A capital T trauma. It's only a mm. little. And I was like, oh, why does it only deserve a little T? Because it doesn't matter what it is. It's a no. trauma. And the comparison serves nothing. So, so whether we lose a client, whether we lose, uh, you know, some kind of project that we wanted to have or do, mm -hmm. Uh, whatever it may be, those are all losses. So what would you say to, especially women, because you mentioned women in business and so forth, and we do have this culture of push, drive, you know, just get through it, get over it, move on. Mm -hmm. What would you say to them in terms of how to deal with grief in business, um, whether it's teammates or their own grief or whatever the case may be? What would you say around that? I think the first hugest step really is to just normalize it and just acknowledge that it's a thing. You know, if we think about what those meetings look like after we've launched a project, you know, whether it was great or not, we sort of have a meeting and we all go, oh, you know, wasn't that great or wasn't that terrible, whichever one. And if it's terrible, we tend to go to some kind of debrief, right? Where did we go wrong? Where did we miss the mark? All that kind of thing. But we don't start with, first of all, acknowledging our team right? Who may be feeling all kinds of things because they've put their heart and soul into this project and it fizzled. So an acknowledgement, like we all worked our butts off and yeah. we thought we were right on track and, yeah. and we missed something somewhere and you're still valuable to me. I still think you're all amazing. You know, yes, we need to pivot. We need to figure out where we missed the mark. We need to relaunch, rebrand, whatever. But for a minute, let's just think about what we thought that launch was going to be as opposed to what it turned out to be. And just allow those emotions just for a minute or two. You could have a moment silence even. I mean, that sounds a little bit formal and maybe a little bit uncomfortable, but we're not gonna get more comfortable with this until we get uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it's like learning any new skill, right? We're learning a new skill. The beauty of that is when you acknowledge those losses that are not the loss of a loved one, which we know are big. Mm -hmm. If you acknowledge the smaller ones, it gives us a place to practice. So we get to practice, how do I do self-care? How do I connect to my own emotions? How do I let them flow through me in a healthy way? How do I feel all kinds of anger and frustration and despair and not scream at my kids, right? Like, how do we do that in a way that's healthy? And then we're practicing languaging. We're practicing supporting each other. We're practicing how we talk about it so that when one of the big ones does happen, we have a little bit of comfort. We have a few tools in our toolbox, right? Me in the early days, a grieving mom, grieving out loud, I am not a good first assignment. But if you've had a little bit of practice in other circumstances of loss, then it's a little bit easier to go, okay, this is a stretch, but I know I'm okay with being uncomfortable. I know I can go in and speak from my heart and I'll do no harm. I know I don't have to be scared that I'll remind her because she remembers, right? You've learned some things along the way. Then we get better and better at it. We're learning a new skill. For whatever reason, as a collective, we don't know how to do it and we're terrible at it. So we yeah. need to change that. Yeah. And that comes with practicing. It comes with talking to each other. It comes with learning new skills. Right. Well, and again, uh, we're in a little over time, but I- I know, is, I keep watching the clock. Going, okay, I'm going to stop talking now. Is that, uh, you know, I loved what you said about um, uh, learning healthy, uh, dealing mm -hmm. with this healthy way, which healthy doesn't mean perfect. Healthy means no. real, right? Yeah. 
which means that, yeah, we may fuck it up. We may not get it right, but at least yep. we're processing and, and being with what is and being real and being authentic and learning as we go and learning as we grow in our capacity around this. One of the things that I think is interesting in an aspect of grief that doesn't get talked about as much as the sadness and the loss and the, the grieving component is the anger, because mm -hmm. I think those are inextricably linked. So, um, and, and typically women, especially in North American culture, well, probably around the world, uh, are just not um, encouraged to be angry because then we get labeled yeah. all sorts of things. Uh, so anger is a really challenging thing to have and to be with. So is there anything specifically around that from your experiences that you would recommend um, when it comes to dealing with someone who's grieving and anger is showing up? Yeah, there's all kinds of healthy ways to process anger, you know, go to a smash room, yell into a pillow, you know, <laughs> beat your bed up. There's all kinds of ways to move it because anger is a big emotion and it needs to be moved. So you need to move your body somehow, doesn't matter how. And anger is an interesting emotion because it's often an umbrella. Usually the real emotion is underneath it somewhere, but our limited language and our limited understanding of our emotions means that we kind of get stopped there. So you can find an emotions, you know, a feeling wheel on the internet. Google has tons of them. They're all great. And get at that more nuanced language because anger around grief is usually about disappointment and despair and frustration and shock. You know, there's a whole bunch of emotions underlying it that show up as anger. For me, my anger came out with me yelling in my car at other drivers. <laughs> that was my place that I could let it out. Never, you know, I never turned into an ag aggressive driver or was dangerous or any of those things, but that's somewhere I could yell at people. And it's sort of socially acceptable to be angry in the car. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so that's where I would feel mine coming out. And I'd be like, oh, okay. So I need to go home and I need to like meditate and tap and like read a good book and touch a tree and go to the beach. Like, cause this is bad. <laughs> like I'm yelling at that person who did nothing wrong because it's okay to yell at other people in the car. Exactly. Um, so it is sort of figuring out where can you let it out in a way that's either healthy or private yep. and, or a combination of the two, because you probably shouldn't, you know, yell at your boss or your customers or your kid, or, you know, there's all kinds of places that we shouldn't just vent our anger, but anger needs to be moved. So if it means you go to a smash room and you beat up a bunch of plates and you like whack a, you know, or you have a foam bath that you beat your bed with, like, sometimes we need to let those big emotions be as big as they are. Yes. And that's okay. Yes. I had a spiritual mentor for many, many years. And one of the things she advocated was slapping a chicken. So a thawed chicken, not a frozen one. Otherwise it really hurts. Um, but, but when you slap them, it feels a lot like slapping someone in the face. And so, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Very therapeutic, but it works very well. I and bet. If the anger does erupt either from the person who's grieving or from other people around them, because often we might get frustrated and so yep. forth. Um, to simply acknowledge it. And I always, you know, my, my grounding is that under anger is always fear. And if we yeah. can have some compassion with ourselves and others and recognize that the person who's angry, we're very egotistical human beings. So we tend to immediately make it about us, right? Yeah. You're angry. Therefore I must be wrong, bad, or have done something that I shouldn't have. Whereas it, you know, maybe I could just have some compassion and go, Hmm, I'm curious what's under the anger. Like you mentioned, and rather than make it about us, just stay with that person and say, is there something that we can, that I can clear? Do you just need to vent, 
you know, do you need space? What would support in this moment, if possible, if you know, and if not, yeah. feel free to yell at me again, you yeah. know, make it personal. And we do tend to do that. So recognize that it's, it's not always about us. In fact, it's very seldom about us and, and being with what is as, as, you know, authentically and imperfectly as we can be. Yeah. Um, so, so good uh, advice. And you mentioned that you have courses. So tell us more about how people can find you, engage with you, what kinds of support resources you have for them. Yeah, the best place to find me is on my website, which is, um, it's it's a little bit confused right now, but I'm going to give you the one that links to the link that I gave you for the ebook. So it's a livedexperience.com. And uh, you'll find a link for a really great ebook about how we can support people at work. Uh, in the show notes, in the Facebook group. I'm sure Jeanette will put it everywhere. Um, That's the best place to find me. You can do a couple of important things there. You can sign up for the newsletter, which comes out every second Friday and always has the latest blog, any podcasts I've been on, any workshops I have coming up. And if anything about this has resonated with you and you want to know more about working for me, you can, working with me, you can book into my calendar. So that's a great place to do those things. And then, yeah, just snoop around. There's all kinds of free resources, blog posts, I don't know. All the things are there, all the links to the socials. So that's your best one-stop shop. Um, I do have a new workshop coming up probably at the beginning of September. So there'll be more information about that, which will be like an introduction to how do we take these skills? How do we build them? And how do we take them to our workplaces? So how do we start to change this culture that we're all stuck in that's not functioning well for any of us? Yes, absolutely. And do it proactively. It is given that we will have losses and that we will have grief in our life. Yeah. Uh, multiple times in multiple ways to multiple degrees, it is absolutely an aspect of humanity. So we might as well get better at it, better equipped to deal with it, better equipped to be with it. Um, and so doing this proactively is not only good in terms of, of what may be coming, but in my experience, almost everyone, myself included, has stored up residual grief that hasn't been expressed or moved or or yeah. worked for our body. Even if we've done a lot of personal development work, which I have, yeah. there's still grief that that kind of pops up and goes, oh, there you are. And and so learning and becoming more comfortable with this, more able to deal with it, more able to be with all of the aspects of who we are as human beings, just makes us stronger and better in every aspect, every aspect of showing up, being a leader. Um, just being functional as a human being. So thank you so much for the work that you do. I think it's so important. I think that it is wonderful to find the efficacy, the joy, and the contribution out of the challenges that you've gone through and to take that and turn it into something that supports you in your your journey. Mm -hmm. also supports others, which is really at, at the core of almost every coach I've ever worked with or counselor or therapist is, you know, this is how we do our work is to be the source of that for others as well. Yes. Congratulations on that and on finding wonderful (laughs) need support. And uh, please do connect with Suzanne um, and take advantage of those resources. Check out the ebook. By all means, um, take the courses, do whatever you need to do to get into her world and deal with this so that you have support for what you have gone through and what you will go through in the future and can be with others better in a way that's truly supportive. Thank you so much for being here, Suzanne. What's one last thought you'd like to leave everyone with? I think as you were sharing about anger, you know, so much of the time when it comes to grief, we're responding with fear 
And if we could choose love instead, that would change the world. Beautiful. Thanks for coming to you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Everyone, hold on. Let me just. Okay, there we go. We're not just got dogs can hear it. Um, yeah, that's a really good note to leave things on. So thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks for listening and doing this work. And thanks in advance for connecting with Suzanne. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, comment, and share. Now go be the difference only you can be.